you have a Bible, you can open to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 25 and 26. The Word of God reads, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for those words. And we pray that we will believe them a great deal more after the preaching of your word than we do even now, trusting with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength that in fact Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That is our hope, that is our boast, that is our joy, and may that always be our comfort the great truth that will carry us home in this difficult time and world in which we live, where one thing is certain, though we will die in Christ, we have been raised to life and will be raised again to everlasting glorified life. Bless us now, we pray. Amen. Uh, This morning, beloved, I want to focus on the theology of the resurrection. So we're not going to um, do what we normally do, that is an exposition um, of, of a particular text. We will go back to John 11. But I want us to see not only the history, the historic truth of the resurrection, but the theology and how it applies to us as believers. Here Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, the apostle Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. In verse 17, he writes, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. In verse 20, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Beloved, there is no aspect of gospel truth revealed in this book, the living word of God, that is more important than the doctrine of the resurrection to denounce 
to, to deny or disbelieve the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have denounced, you have denied, and refused to believe the whole word of God. He who is prophesied throughout Scripture as the Messiah is the one who must be put to death. He is the one who must rise from the dead. Everything about this book, the whole of Christianity, stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To deny the resurrection is to, not, to deny Jesus as the Christ. Therefore, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, everyone is going to hell. But if he has, it changes everything. And many indeed are redeemed from the punishment of hell. Many. To deny the resurrection is to deny that Christ has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as the God-man. Having declared that he was God in the flesh, he also declared that he must be crucified, that he must be delivered over to the hands of evil men, be crucified, and raised the third day. He said it many times throughout his ministry. When Jesus, the source and substance of truth, preached, everyone who heard understood what he said. Now, they may not have believed, most didn't, but they understood what he said. Because he, he crossed their man-made traditions, he offended their pride, and he showed utter contempt for their empty religious piety. They understood him, though they didn't believe him. Unwilling as most were to bow to his claims as Lord, but they understood Example, uh, when the religious elite of his day, the Pharisees, who were supposed to know the scriptures, by the way, and how they foretold of God's promised Messiah, the Christ, when they heard his claims, the scripture says that they were filled with wrath. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. How did they respond? By picking up stones, the scripture says again, picking up stones again to stone him. Why? John chapter 10 and verse 33, for blasphemy, they said, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus of Nazareth was saying, look, Okay, look at me, listen to me, hear this, look into my face. Because as you do, you are looking almighty God square in the face. For before Abraham was, I am. 
I am who I am. That's how Yahweh described himself to Moses at the burning bush. They understood what he was saying. Jesus went on to say that he would be killed, he would be laid in a tomb, and that he would be raised up again the third day. They heard him. They didn't believe him, but they understood. In Mark chapter 12, we read, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, what they meant by that was they wanted some you know, astronomical cosmic miracle for Jesus to make the stars dance around or something. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus, during his ministry, referred to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. And with regard to the great temple, Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. And I say, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. They heard him. They didn't believe him, but they understood what he said. We read this in Matthew 25, or 26, rather, verse 59. The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. As he hung on the cross, Matthew 27, verse 39, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, they said, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. They understood what he said. After his death, Matthew 27, verse 62, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Everyone who heard him understood him, though they didn't believe him. They understood. Friends, they understood his doctrine far better than most people do today. Friends, we do not believe in fairy tales, nor does God call us to believe in fairy tales, but gives us evidences of reliability of a risen Savior. 
who conquered sin and death, who publicly proclaimed his own resurrection over and over again. To this day, the sacred tomb is empty. That sacred sepulcher, empty, providing the sin debt that has been paid. That, that grave could not hold him. It was impossible. He has power over death, and because he lives, all who know him live now and will live forever. So as Christians, we, we don't gaze at some great pyramid or, or some urn that attempts to immortalize and, and glorify some mere mortal king or guru whose body has rotted away and whose soul is incarcerated in hell for eternity, whether the pharaohs of the past or the Gandhis of the past who denied Christ are rotting in hell and people sit and stare at their urn and glorify the dead. There is an empty rock tomb that briefly held the rock of our salvation, the only Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he has risen just as he said. Part of the theme of Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, he declared that this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, hear this, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Our subject this Easter morning, 2020, is Christ our resurrection. Christ our resurrection. He who is the resurrection and the life, all who trust in him shall in the last day be resurrected. Now, um, resurrection hope is not something that is merely 2,000 years old. Did you know that? Resurrection hope is not something that is merely 2,000 years old. Turn back, if you will, in your Bibles to Job chapter 19. Job 19. Now, the book of Job, if I understand it correctly, is the oldest book in the Bible. Believed to have been written 2,000 years before Christ. Um, it was written before Moses penned the Pentateuch. Um, placed here by way of divine providence in the first place of the poetic books. And here, at the lowest emotional point in Job's um, series of trials, I mean, think about this, he, he's lost his family, he's lost his livestock, his wealth, his reputation, his friends, and acquaintances. And he suddenly cries out with deep faith and confident hope. Okay, listen to what this man said two millennia before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25. 
Job 19. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. I know, says Job, those are very strong words. Sometimes I say I know something when I really don't. <laughs> when Job said it, he said it by way of divine inspiration. I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. The word for Redeemer is Gael. Probably familiar with that term. You will be in a moment. You'll be reminded anyway. Um, before any New Testament light, um, it is allowed to shine on this passage. Um, this Hebrew word refers to a person's nearest blood relative, whose role it was to honor the family in times of trouble and to seek justice and restitution. Gael. This describes, for example, Boaz in the story of Naomi and Ruth, the kinsman, kinsman redeemer, the Gael. It refers to someone who's next of kin, and that is precisely what Job said he does not have in verses 13 through 17. Yet Job describes his kinsmen by stating that, that he lives and that he will stand pointing in the direction of his kinsmen's divine being, his deity. After I'm dead, says Job, after my bones are turned to dust, yet in my flesh, in this body, the body that is presently covered with boils, and because of this infectious disease, but my breath coming out of this body that offends my wife in the midst of this misery, this body, in this body I shall see God, says Job. Whom I shall see for myself. With these eyes I shall see him. Him. So here in sickness and sorrow, in trial and affliction, we see this man in excruciating pain who's actually calm and confident in something much greater than his present condition. And he, he here is living in resurrection hope. Job. Friends, for us, Christians, brothers and sisters, for us, assurance of the resurrection is much more than just a doctrine. It's more than a point of, of theological orthodoxy as essential as it is. Okay? It is a doctrine, but it's much more than that. 
It's very personal. To talk about the resurrection, we're talking about the most important personal thing in the world. So it's not merely a doctrine per se, but it is a person. The person. Jesus Christ himself, who, who is the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus to Martha. John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, Martha, wailing over the loss of her brother, Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die yet, shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? All who are watching this morning. Because, you know, resurrection hope is not some fool's philosophy or some, you know, religious sedative to, to stupefy our minds as we live through this turbulent life. This is confident assurance of faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, Son of the living God. Do you believe this? Okay, now, this morning, I want us to see what it means to live with resurrection hope. What does it mean for the Christian to live with resurrection hope in Christ? Well, the reason we're able to live with resurrection hope is because, number one, of our everlasting union with Christ. Because of our everlasting union with Christ. And number two, the fact that we've already been raised in Christ, spiritually. You've been raised once. So that number three... We can rest in the assured hope that we will be raised not unlike our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, on the last day. Okay? So now we'll look at the theology of all this. Because our everlasting union with Christ is just that, everlasting. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be jumping around the Bible, so you can either write these down, or if you can keep up, follow along. Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Okay, Paul is telling us that while he lived on this earth in obedience to the law of God, I lived in him. 
you lived in him. When Jesus died at Calvary as my substitute, I died in him. You, believer, died in him. And when he rose the third day, I arose in him. And you, believer, arose with him. Notice verse 5, okay? Now, while verse 5 is talking about the new birth, it's talking about the new birth, that is regeneration, that's what it is to be born again, born from above. He's talking about that there, but he refers to it in terms of something that preceded it. We were made alive together with Christ by grace and raised up with him. And notice, seated with him in heavenly places. So we were not made to, to sit with him in heavenly places, in heavenly places, the moment of the new birth. But when Christ sat down as our heavenly representative, we sat down in him. Which means that union with Christ, that's what salvation is, union in Christ is eternal and it was determined before the world began for you. That's what we're told in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Listen to it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And though in these whom he predestined, he also called. In these whom he called, he also justified. In these whom he justified, he also glorified. We're told elsewhere that we were sanctified in Christ before the foundation of the world. You say, I don't understand that. And I say, I understand that you don't understand that. Neither do I. But it's true. This is a fact. This reality is unknown to us until it is brought to light by way of the gospel. When we were made alive by way of the new birth, Ephesians 2 verse 5. Blessed of God, we read, we were. Blessed of God in Christ with all spiritual blessings before the world began. Now listen to this. Ephesians 1.4. Just as, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Again, Ephesians 1.4. Now I didn't know anything about that until. Again. I didn't know anything about that until he called me by grace and I started reading my Bible. You knew nothing about that until he called you according to his grace by way of the gospel. 1 Peter 1, we read, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. To foreknow doesn't mean to foresee, but means to forelove. Those foreloved of God all before the world began. Now, we only found out about it when, when life and immortality were brought to light again by way of the gospel. 
And friends, that is the language of Scripture. Your union with Christ is an everlasting union. Before the foundation of the world. This is, this is what resurrection power is all about. Our union with Christ is a secret, eternal union until it is made known in time by God's grace through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's when you realize it. God foreordained it for you. Now, some people, even Christians, squirm over that. They, they get all ruffled about that, but that's how Scripture describes it. This is resurrection life. I am the resurrection and the life, says our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is very important to understand, Christian, that this union of resurrection power is a legal representative union, a legal representative union. The fact that Christ represented us from eternity and continues to represent us everlastingly. Your representative. While he was on earth, he was representing you. That's why when he lived, we lived in him. When he died, we died with him. We died in him. When he was raised, we were raised in Christ because of this union, an everlasting union. And now he represents you in heaven, ever living to make intercession for you, rightly representing you before God the Father, which means everything he has done he has done on our behalf so that God looks to him in his law, he looks to him in his justice, and he looks to him alone for complete righteousness and atonement. You are in him by way of union. This is how God sees you, because you're in him. Providing complete satisfaction on our behalf, a union that is living and eternal. Made manifest when Christ is formed in us at the new birth. That's why I always refer to divine election as a family secret. It's something we didn't even know about until we were granted life in Christ. That makes us, beloved, recipients. Because of that union, we're recipients of the first resurrection. We've been given spiritual life. That resurrection, the first resurrection, is spiritual. Having once been under divine judgment, we, not unlike them, Ephesians 2, verse 3, were what? Children of wrath. And yet there's this union we, we, we had no idea about until we were given life. So Christ, he, he takes unto himself our nature, human nature, and he bears the wrath, he bears the enmity, and makes us partakers of his image. Divine sovereign grace. That is a union of life in Christ. So we understand something of the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. 
when he said this, Father, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Everything about salvation is central to this union. Without it, there's nothing. Nothing. When Jesus arose from the grave, he arose as our representative. All that he has done, all that he has experienced, Scripture tells us all God's elect have done and have experienced in him. Living the perfect life before God the Father. Dying on the cross in Christ and raised again in him. All by way of our virtue, all by way of of our union with him. Turn to Romans 5. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all, what? Sinned. Okay, that is when when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam died, we died. He's the representative head of humanity. Verse 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, it's referring to the first Adam, even so through one act of righteousness, now referring to the second Adam, Jesus, there resulted justification of life to all men, that is, to all men who are in Christ. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through obedience of the one, Christ, the many will be made righteous. So as we were made sinners in Adam, we were born sinners in Adam. By grace, because of that everlasting union that we knew nothing about, We have been made righteous in the second Adam. Paul puts it like this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all, that is all who are in Christ, will be made alive. Will be made alive. Having In everlasting union in Christ, we were made alive. And these bodies, not unlike Job, will be made alive again because of this union. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, 
The spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first Adam is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we, that is, we who are in Christ, will also bear the image of the heavenly because of this union, which is everlasting, that we knew nothing about until the light of the gospel came to us and caused us to be born of the Spirit, resurrected spiritually. So, just like you and I bear the image of the first representative head of the earth, he who is earthy, that is, representing humanity, Adam, we who are in Christ, by grace we will, by grace we must, and and, oh, bless the name of the Lord for this, we must just as surely bear the image of the last representative head who is from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Glorious. Turn to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified, what's that word? With him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is, by way of that union we've been talking about, that's resurrection power. You're no longer enslaved to sin as you once were because of that union that was everlasting that you knew nothing about until the new birth, the first resurrection. We lived in him, we died in him, we arose in him. Okay, question. What then can possibly hinder the glorious resurrection of his people? What can hinder the resurrection of his people? What might keep you, what might keep us in the grave? What can possibly keep us from entering into glory upon death if you take your last breath today? What is it? Sin? Is it sin? No. You're in Christ and you're dead to sin. You're you're dead to its power. It has no power over you. 
Is it the law? Will that keep you from glory? No. That's settled in Christ. It's a done deal. What about hell? He defeated hell. Christ defeated hell. What about the grave? He overcame the grave. What about Satan? Now, we accomplished all this by way of our union in Christ. He did it all. We're in him. So none of this has power over you, not even Satan, not a chance. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Christ partook of the same, okay? That through death... He might, render the, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. No power. No power over you because of this union, which is everlasting, and that you knew nothing about until the new birth, the first resurrection. 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil who was a liar from the beginning. The seed promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed and her seed, and he, singular, will crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the cross. He just conquered the cross. Satan, he made a public spectacle of all demonic forces we read in Colossians. Now, what would, what, it, what would it mean for you if Christ had not been raised? Well, Paul, the apostle, is honest about what it would mean for him. And had not Christ been raised, Paul says he'd become a hedonist. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ hadn't been raised, we would live lives totally contrary to the lives we currently live. It would lead some of us to civil unrest. Oh, but grace. We're no longer of the earthy. We are of the heavenly. In Christ. Raised in Christ. Having died with Christ. So because the resurrection is true, this is the main reason you don't live the way that your sinful nature normally would want to. Because you've been raised in Christ. Glory to God. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, again, since you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is what? Seated. And remember, we already covered this, you're already seated in him because of this union, which is everlasting, that you knew nothing about until the light of the gospel was shown in your hearts and he raised you to life. I am the resurrection and the life. So you can live in hope of the resurrection, beloved, 
because of the everlasting union you have with the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that you were raised with Christ when he arose from the dead because you've already experienced this glorious, glorious new birth. You've been made alive in Christ. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you. And the truth is, beloved, nobody knows he lives until he lives in you. This we know, this we believe, this is the, the blessed gift of the first resurrection. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has what? No power. No power. Hell has no power over those who have taken part in the first resurrection. Because you, beloved Christian brother or sister, have been graced to believe the glorious gospel. You believe it. That's a gift. Do you believe it? Do you believe it's a gift? I know you believe the gospel, but do you believe it's a gift to believe? Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. When he comes to judge the living and the dead. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints, that's you, on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. You believe in the resurrection because you've been given resurrection life and power. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I ask you at home, do you believe this? Unbelievers tuned in, you've heard this. You're witnesses of this now. Do you believe this? Come to Christ. We bid you to come to Christ on this Easter morning. We hope and we pray the Holy Spirit is among you, causing this truth the fact that you have a union with Almighty God through Christ, which is eternal, that you know nothing about and you have known nothing about until today, is he makes you alive in Christ. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... A person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. I am the resurrection and the life, says our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for this glorious Easter morning. We celebrate here in the year 2020 
And I pray that you would seal this truth to the hearts of your people, encourage them, strengthen them, bless them, and bring to life this day through this message any who hear these words to be used as the light to be shown within their hearts to grant them the life that we share by way of union with Christ for your glory and the good of your name. Amen.